0: Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We are in Acts chapter 6. We've been working our way through Acts chapter 6 here. Oh, by the way, if you are a visitor, there's some visitor cards or blank cards on the chair in front of you. If you wouldn't mind putting down your name and any kind of information you want to get, we want to thank you for being uh, here with us. And you can also put prayer requests on the back of that for anybody. There's prayer requests, and then just slip it in that uh, brown box, a Tide box, uh, as you leave this morning. Acts chapter 6. Um, I don't know, some of your Bibles, if you have little, you know, my Bible's got little, uh, you know, paragraph titles and stuff over it. And many Bibles say, Stephen's defense. And uh, actually, when we get to chapter 7. But um, I titled the message this morning, Who is on Trial? And uh, we'll we'll get into that later on. But picking it up at verse 6, excuse me, verse 8 of chapter 6. And Stephen full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen, if you recall from last week, he's one of the seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that uh, you recall that the, the the apostles were, I mean, the church is just growing. Uh, exponentially and uh, they're, the apostles are serving the widows in this congregation however many there were there's thousands of people at this point so it could have been you know hundreds at least maybe of widows and so they're they're doing this and people are starting to grumble and complain because they feel like hey our widows the Hellenists are, are being left out and so um, the apostles prayed about it and then they said hey you guys pick seven men uh, full of good, or of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and their job was basically to serve tables, kind of like a waiter at a restaurant that that was their job, and so uh, Stephen was one of those men, and uh, you know what I was thinking about that is so he starts out and he's just one of the guys that they used to to serve just to serve tables, and uh, he was faithful in that little task that the Lord gave him, and now the Lord's using him in a much greater much greater way as we'll see here in verse eight. And so, uh, actually, verse 9. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. So... The synagogue of the freemen These were Jews who had been taken prisoner by Pompey in about 63 BC, so many years prior. They were carried off to Rome, and they were made slaves there, but afterwards they were freed. And uh, they returned, many of them re- returned to Jerusalem, and uh, they established their own synagogue, because these guys would have probably been Hellenists. You know, they would have spoke the Greek language, uh, read Greek language, maybe they'd never even read, or spoke Hebrew, you know, the original Hebrew. Um, and uh, and so they formed their own synagogue, basically. And Stephen, his name actually means Stephanos, or Stephanos, which in Greek means crown. And so he was uh, probably more than likely Hellenist also. And my guess... Is that he's just trying to minister? So here's this Hellenist who's gotten saved, and, and he's ministering, and he wants to go to people that he can identify with and minister to them in this synagogue. Um, you know what's instrument or instrumental? <laughs> what's incidental about this? Uh, it may be incidental, but you know whenever things are mentioned in the Bible, I don't think they're quite coincidences or anything. But this synagogue is mentioned here, in Paul, while Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was a city in Cilicia, and so the apostle Paul, who later his name was changed to to Paul, it's possible that this is a synagogue that he attended as a young Jewish man. And he may even have been one of the ones disputing with Stephen, or he was just there, one of the, uh, the, uh, you know, at least present as a young man. So it's, it's kind of interesting that this synagogue is mentioned. And so they are debating with Stephen. Verse 10, it says, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And if you recall in verse 5, it says he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And Stephen here is doing great signs and wonders among the people. And, you know, originally it was just the apostles, like Peter and John, that you were seeing these, or reading about these miracles. And now... Stephen is also doing it. The Lord is working through Stephen. But his ministry is not the signs and wonders. His ministry is sharing the gospel. That's what he's doing. And that's what they're disputing with him. Not over his works, but over his words. And that's Stephen's heart. Verse 11 Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. You know, it's kind of interesting. If you recall in the Gospels when Christ was arrested, um, these were some of the exact same uh, accusations that were leveled against Jesus. You could read that in Matthew chapter 26. And Jesus told his disciples in John fifteen twenty, he said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my words they would also keep yours. And so, you know, here they're getting this, or Stephen's getting the same accusations level against him. What a blessing that would be for you and I, if someone accuses us of being just like Jesus. You know, if that, if that was the accusation that was made on us, man, that, I was like, yes, <laughs> I hope that that would be my accusation. You know, Peter talks about Christians who suffer for the name of Christ. And one of the things he says is this in First Peter 4, he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. So we don't want to get. We don't want to be accused of those things. But man, if, if they say, man, this guy, this lady, she, they just act like Jesus. Like, Amen. All right, that's what we hope, right? Verse fifteen, and all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. they just the face of an angel. Oh, sorry. No, that's that's only a, that's a face only a mother could love. So I'm sorry. <laughs> no, seriously, what does the face of an angel look like? I guarantee it doesn't look like this. <laughs> what does the face of an angel look like? Um, you know, it's interesting. Some people say, well, you know, he just had that glow like Moses had, and you know that's possible too. Um, but what about angels? Well, Jesus said this in Matthew 18.10. He he's talking about the angels, and he says, they, are always, they always see the face of my Father in heaven. So, I mean, they're always at the presence of the Father. In fact, when Gabriel came and announced the birth of the Savior, in Luke 1.19, he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And back in the Old Testament, the prophet Micaiah, Micah, well, I think it's Micah, but it's pronounced Micaiah, um, in First Kings twenty-two nineteen, 19, he gives us vision. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. So what is a face of an angel? I don't think he looked like Cupid, and I don't think he looked like, you know, Michael the archangel with a sword drawn or anything. But if you think about this, the angels... They see God on his throne. They see heaven. That's, that's reality. This isn't reality. Heaven is reality. So I think what his face looked like was he had peace, he had confidence in the Lord, and he had boldness. And I think that's what they saw. There's, just, there's this calmness about him, even in the face of accusations and persecution. They're like, there's something different about him. But we get to chapter 7, then the high priest said, are these things so? So the accusations, I'll just repeat them. He said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And that's pretty serious accusations in the Jewish culture, in Judaism. They said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law, speaking of the temple and the commandments, you know, circumcision and all those things. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So those are the accusations that are leveled against Stephen. Verse 7, well, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 2. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran or Haran and said to him get out of your country from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran and from there when his father was dead he moved him to this land in which you now dwell so just the way he started he's got all these accusations leveled against him and what is the first words out of his mouth brethren and fathers that's a respectful response you know, the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. I mean, he could have just started yelling at them and calling them hypocrites and everything and calling them names and everything. But you've got to remember, he is under the control of the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit is saying through him. So it's respectful, but it's also a reminder. It's a reminder that they're all Jews in that room. They all have the same father, Abraham. And he said, The glory, excuse me, the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. And so, Stephen, as he starts here in verse 2, he starts with the God of glory. And when we get to the end of the story in verse 55, he ends with the glory of God. Well, God in his grace appeared to Abraham. And, you know, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, we read that Abraham and his fathers, they served other gods when they were in Mesopotamia. In other words, God didn't go, hey, there's, there's Abraham. He looks like a really righteous dude, and I'm going to call him to, you know, to be the father of the nations. No, he was an idol worshiper. That's God's grace. God's grace picking someone who doesn't deserve to be picked, to be called. So God in his grace appeared to Abraham and told him to leave that place. He didn't say, you know, leave that place and here's a map of where you got to go. He said, just, go, just leave that place to a place I'm going to show you. So Abraham there, he walked by faith and not by sight. Now, if you read the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, his faith was weak. You know, he's not like this champion of faith. He's called the father of our faith, but he didn't start out that way. But here's just a step of faith at this point. And he went as far as Haran, and he settled there until his father died. And it says here, when his father was dead, he, meaning God, moved him to the land in which you now dwell. So, you know, in a sense, faith is static, in one sense, right? When you and I, uh, at the God uh, loves you tour event, you know, we, we we're praying, we, you know, and Franklin Graham gave the invitation, and people stood up, and there's this static, or not a static, but it's a faith, right? I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead. I, I believe that he's the Savior. You know, there, there's a step of faith. There's, you have to have that faith to be saved. But faith is never meant to remain static in our lives. It's meant to be dynamic, to be growing in our lives. Well, how does faith grow? By trusting God uh, in his promises, trusting his word, and then by walking in faith. You know, God may call you to go through a circumstance and you don't know the end result of it. You can't see your way forward, but God wants you to just take those steps of faith. Because that's how you grow in your faith. Your, your, your faith will not grow unless it's tested, unless it's challenged, unless it's stretched. So Abraham was growing in his faith. And here God in his mercy, you know, Abraham settled there in Haran, and that wasn't the promised land. So he settled there in Haran, he's taking care of his, his father, and, and, uh, and then his father dies, and then God gives him just a little nudge. Okay, okay. This isn't the place. Keep going. Keep going. You know, God does that in our own lives, too, you know? Sometimes we kind of settle into this place, and then God gives us a little nudge. He may remove something from us, or, or something happens, and he's like, okay, trust me, just walk in faith. And that's what's happening here with Abram, Abraham, I should say. His name is Abram, but it'll be changed to Abraham in Genesis. Verse 5 of chapter 7. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not, any, not, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. So God promised this land and fulfilled his promise. And, and Stephen is reminding them, hey, you are all recipients of this promise. We're here today because God was faithful to his promises. Verse 6. But God spoke in this way that the descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And and after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Remember the accusations. Stephen is speaking against this place. They placed a lot of importance on a place, the temple in Jerusalem. And Stephen's point here is that God called Abraham while he was even in a foreign land. He wasn't in the temple. God called him. And God was working in Abraham's life even when he wasn't in the promised land, when he was in Haran. God was still working. God is still nudging him. Hey, I want you to step forward. And the children of Israel, they're going to dwell 400 years in Egypt. They're not even going to be in the promised land. But God was still at work in their lives. And he's behind the scenes raising up this young man, a baby that's floating in a basket in, in, the, in the Nile River, Moses, to be raised up by, by the daughter of Pharaoh, to grow up in Pharaoh's palace, to be trained in all the things of the Egyptians. God was still at work. God's not you know, confined to a location. But that's what the Sanhedrin, that's the, everything's the temple. Yeah, everything's focused on this place. Verse 8, then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. So God promised Abraham a son, and you can read that back in Genesis. He had no sons. He was an old man, and God said, you're going to have a son. And Abraham believed God. And the Bible says in the Old Testament that Abraham's righteousness, he was righteous because he believed in God's promise. He, took, he, he, he believed by faith that God was going to fulfill what he said. And so God gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And what circumcision is, spiritually, it's a response for the Jewish people. It's a response to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis chapter 17, God's giving these promises to Abraham and he he says over and over and over I will do this I will do this I will do this and then when he gets to verse 11 of Genesis 17 God says this to Abraham and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you and so for Abraham and his descendants after him circumcision was a sign it wasn't a it was a sign of faith in God's promises and it was obedience to the covenant it's really interesting you guys know what circumcision is. I'm not going to get into it. But, but in, in, even in the Old Testament, God's giving this law about circumcision. And he even says it in Deuteronomy, you know, circumcise your hearts. Circumcise your hearts. So, you know, this is an external thing. It was an external sign of something internal. And Abraham's faith was accounted to him for righteousness way before Isaac was circumcised. This is part of the law. And yet Abraham's faith, uh, you know, 10 to 20 years earlier is when God gave Abraham a promise and God believed, or excuse me, Abraham believed God's promise. Genesis 15 verse 6, and he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So 10, 20 years later, this baby is born. God fulfilled his promise, and now he's having him circumcised. You see, in the Jews, in Stephen's day, they put all, they said, if you're circumcised, that makes you a righteous Jew because you're circumcised. Well, that was just an external sign. It wasn't what was going on in the heart. Circumcision had not made Abraham or Isaac righteous before God, his faith is what made him righteous. And so Isaac grows up. His name, is, uh, his name uh, is Jacob, and later on it will be changed to Israel. And he had 12 sons, which Stephen calls here the patriarchs. This is a name we don't use too often nowadays. But a patriarch is the head or the father or the family, or excuse me, the founder of a family or a tribe. And so all of his 12 sons, they are the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph. So Joseph is one of the brothers, one of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs became envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. That's a very fascinating study if you ever look into the story of Joseph Um, John Corson makes the following comparisons between Joseph and Jesus Christ because Joseph in the Old Testament is a picture of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. First of all, we know that Joseph's brothers were moved with envy. They hated Joseph. They were envious of him. And Pilate says in Matthew chapter 27, he knew that for envy, they delivered Jesus to them, to the Romans. They were jealous of him, envious of him. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver, and Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph was punished for sins he didn't commit. Jesus, the sinless one, was punished for our sins. Joseph was cast into prison. Jesus descended into the prison of the earth. Joseph became ruler of the prison. Jesus preached in hell and led captivity captive. Joseph miraculously was freed from prison and Jesus miraculously arose from the grave. There's, a, there's a, just a neat Bible study. If you ever get into that, and dig into it and do the comparisons. So 11 of these patriarchs became envious of Joseph. They hated him. They wanted to kill him originally, but Judah, one of the brothers, convinced them to sell him into slavery. To, in, and so Joseph was handed over to these nomadic Ishmaelites that are just passing through. And the patriarchal Sanhedrin had done exactly what Joseph's brothers did to, to, uh, to him, to Joseph. They rejected Christ. They were envious of Christ. They sought to kill him, and Jesus was handed over to the Romans to be circumcised. And it says, And the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him." I love those, but God. You can find them in the Bible. You read through things. There's some terrible situation going on. And it says, but God, but God was with him. You know, God didn't prevent Joseph from suffering. Yeah, that, that maybe it's like, oh, that, that shakes some people's faith. But God didn't prevent Joseph from suffering. But he was with Joseph through the suffering. Verse 11. Now a famine and great trouble came all over the land of Egypt and Canaan and our fathers found no sustenance but when jacob heard that there was grain in egypt he sent our fathers first and the second time joseph was made known to his brothers and joseph's family became known to pharaoh then joseph sent and called his father jacob uh, called for his father jacob and all his relatives to him 75 people so stephen's point here the first time joseph was presented to his brothers in egypt they didn't recognize him they, didn't, they thought he was dead. They thought he was long dead. They had given up on him. And here he's, he's a governor second to Pharaoh in Egypt. They didn't recognize him. So too, the first time Jesus, was, uh, Jesus Christ was presented on earth to his brethren, the Jews didn't recognize him either. But Jesus Christ is going to be presented to his brethren, the Jewish people, one more time at the end of the Great Tribulation. And, you know, if you need to read the story when Joseph, and you, you kind of see it in the pictures, but when their brothers realized that Joseph was their brother, man, they wept. And the Bible says in Zechariah 12, verse 10, this is speaking about at the end of the tribulation. Jesus is going to appear to the Jewish people. He's not done with the nation of Israel by any stretch. In verse 10, it says, they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. You know, sometimes you think the Old Testament is just so, you know, we're just going to focus on the New Testament. We're not going to read the Old Testament. The Old Testament, man, it's got so many beautiful pictures and symbols that point to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, of course, is the fulfillment of all these symbols and pictures that we see in the Old Testament. Anyways, verse 15 So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. So while the descendants of Jacob lived in Egypt their, those 400 years, there wasn't a tabernacle. There wasn't a temple. They weren't doing sacrifices. And yet God was with them in that time of all those 400 years. And God made a nation out of Jacob's descendants. But as that nation grew and multiplied, we just read, the Egyptians started feeling threatened by them. There was too many of them. And so they started afflicting and mistreating them and turned them into slaves. And yet it says in Exodus 1, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. I love that. Why does God allow his children to be afflicted and to suffer? That's a fair question to ask. Why does God do that? I don't always have the answer because I'm not God, but I do know this. We live in a sinful world. And and the sinful world, this world has got a curse on it. And the effects of sin touches each one of us. Either either we're touching someone with our sin, or we're getting touched by someone else's sin. It's It's just life. That's just the world we live in. God sometimes uses suffering to remind us of the brevity of life. And how the things of this life never produce true peace and satisfaction. It's, it's just a reminder, man, life is short. You know, sometimes we just take it, we take that for granted. You know, maybe, you know, like my wife, she had to she traveled away, you know, and I wanted to make sure she she knew, man, I love you. We we call on the phone, I love you, I love you. Because man, I don't know, maybe this is the last day I see her on earth, you know. I want to communicate that to her. Life is short. But suffering gives us a yearning for the eternal. Just think about this. If everything was perfect in your life, would you be all that excited about going to heaven? I've got a pretty good here, you know. I, I, I like my home by the lake. I like my, my fancy cars. And, you know, I like my, my money and everything like that. I've got great health. But when you and I start suffering... It's like, Lord, man, come soon. <laughs> I've said that many times. Lord, you could come today. I'd be perfectly, be perfectly happy. So suffering sometimes gives us a yearning for the eternal. And God also uses suffering to cause the believer to draw close to him. I can tell you this. My devotional life is never better than when I'm suffering, when I'm going through a trial. Man, that's when I'm on my knees praying. That's when I'm reading my Bible. Lord, you, I need an answer from you. I need, I need you, Lord. And that's when I do it. I'm, I mean, I, I do it all the time. I try to anyways. But I'm more apt during suffering. And so sometimes we go, man, suffering so terrible. Well, in the life of the believer, man, I, thank you, Lord, for some suffering. I'm not I mean, right when I'm in the middle of suffering. I'm not like, oh, thank you, Lord. Praise. Oh, thank you that my car just blew up. You know, No. <laughs> But looking back, I'm like, Lord, thank you. You, you. you refocused me. And so God was using suffering to strengthen the children of Israel and to prepare them for his chosen deliverer. I mean, they're getting to the end of these 400 years and it's like, man, we need, you know, it was getting really, really bad. So they're ready, they're ready for a deliverer, a man named Moses. Verse 20. And at this time Moses was born. And was well pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned or learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged them, excuse me, avenged him who was oppressed, and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting, so two Hebrews that were fighting, and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away and said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? You know, Moses thought it was all hidden. Nobody knew about it, and here it's common knowledge. Of course, at that point, he flees to Midian, if you know the story in the book of Exodus. But the first time Moses was presented to his brethren as a deliverer, they rejected him. Like the patriarchs rejected Joseph, And like the Sanhedrin, rejected Jesus Christ. Verse 29. Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and he drew near to observe. The voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, in verse 35, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bo- in the bush. So just like Moses was sent from Midian to go to Egypt to, to deliver God's people, so Jesus Christ was sent from heaven to earth to bring deliverance to the children of Israel. And Moses... Who the children of Israel rejected, like who made you a leader over us? God had chosen him, Jesus Christ, who the sanhedrin rejected was god's chosen deliverer also verse thirty six he brought them out after, uh, he, me, he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years, so God validated Moses. As is chosen to deliver by doing wonders and signs through Moses. That was the purpose. It was to validate Moses. Jesus said to the or to the Pharisees and the scribes, in John 10 verse 37, it says, "If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me, but if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him." God says, Jesus said, you may not believe what I'm saying, but God has validated me. Believe the works. So God the Father validated his son, Jesus Christ, by doing signs and wonders through him. Verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Physically delivered from Egypt. Physically delivered from Egypt, but in their hearts, man, they just wanted to go back. God. It was not. It was no problem for God to deliver them physically from Egypt, but it was a struggle to get Egypt out of the people. Verse forty, saying to Aaron, Make us. Oh, say. Verse thirty-nine, whom our fathers would not object, not object, would not obey, but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what what has become of him. That this Moses, I kind of use a little emphasis in it, it was a way to derogatorily describe Moses. This Moses, we don't know what happened to him. That's what's really what the Hebrew is trying to communicate. This Moses, the one the children of Israel rejected, would not obey, spoke of the coming Messiah. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. So Stephen is saying this to the Sanhedrin, right? Not too many not too long before that, Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin. And Peter says the exact same thing, "Hey, this Jesus Christ is whom Moses said." So this is not the first time they've heard this. They've heard this before. In fact, the prophet was a commonly understood definition of someone who the, who the Jewish people were expecting at this time, they were under Roman rule. They were looking for a deliverer. They were waiting for that Messiah, the prophecy of the Messiah. Even before the start of Jesus' ministries, the Jews were anticipating the prophet that Moses spoke of. Because if you read in, in John, in the first chapter of John, when John the Baptist is beginning his ministry, it says the Jews sent to him, uh, sent to him, it was John the Baptist, priests and Levites from Jerusalem and to ask him, who are you? I mean, here's a strange guy eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, that's kind of a different diet. And he's dressed really weird. And he's speaking, you know, hellfire and brimstone. And people are getting saved, or, or not getting saved, but they're they're repenting and they're being baptized. And they said, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah. And he said, I'm not. Here's the next question. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. This is the same prophet that Moses was taught. That, so, so they were expecting. They're like, are you the prophet? Some Jews did recognize Jesus as the prophet. For example, Philip is one of the disciples. He alludes to this Messianic prophecy when he goes to Nathanael, who later had become another disciple He said, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So there were some people that said, hey, this is the prophet. In John chapter 6, after Jesus had performed the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, the people recalled Moses' prophecy about a prophet. It says, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So there's a lot of buzz about the prophet in that day and age. Some, Jew, some, uh, there the some Jews who recognized that Jesus was the prophet Moses spoke of, but the Sanhedrin rejected He whom Moses spoke of. Remember their their accusation: "Hey, he's speaking against Moses." <laughs> it's the wrong way around, man. They're speaking against Moses. They're the ones who are guilty. The children of Israel rejected the living oracles given through Moses. It's that, kind of an interesting term, the living oracles. Well, the oracles, it, it's described that because it's, it's commands that came from God. And it reveals God's mind and his will. God revealed himself to the children of Israel. So spoke to Moses, and those are the oracles. And they're called living because they were delivered by voice. God audibly spoke to Moses. It's interesting because in John 6, verse 63, Jesus said this, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. You see, the Sanhedrin rejected, just like the children of Israel before, rejected the living oracles given by Moses. They're rejecting the living oracles delivered by Jesus Christ. Verse 41, And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. And I was quoting out of the Old Testament. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphran, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So... (laughs) Here these guys are delivered from Egypt. God's called them. He's revealed himself through Moses. Mir- you know, signs and wonders and stuff. Amazing things that happened in those seven plagues, right? And now they're, they're being delivered. And here, via the Holy Spirit delivering it, it says, they also brought idols with them from the land of Egypt. And then they also, and you know the story, they wanted Aaron to build a calf for them, make a calf for them. So they they had this calf that they worshipped. They had the tabernacle of Moloch, which is terrible if you ever do any studying on what that sacrificing to Moloch was. And the star of your god Remphran. These are idols that they brought with them from Egypt. Now, when I was studying for this, and this is a, you know, I like to sometimes impress you with words. And this is a word, I'll be honest with you, I'll just be frank. I didn't know it before, but I came across this word and I kind of dug into it. It's called syncretism. And what syncretism is defined, it's the combination of different forms of belief or practice. Because that's what's taking place. They're worshiping Jehovah, but they're also worshiping these idols. That's syncretism. We would call it having a divided heart. They had a divided heart. They worship Joseph, and yet they combine different forms of belief and practice with these idols. You know, it's sad to say, but the Christian church, in some churches are guilty of doing the same thing, syncretism, where they've combined different forms of belief and practice. And I might step on a toe or two, but it's okay. This is... Yeah, you can throw eggs at me or tomatoes later or something. But I know people really like yoga. You know, that's like this, like this exercise thing. But churches that have yoga—do you realize that yoga is a Hindu religion? It's it's part of the Hindu religion. It's 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 from idolatry, and so there's churches that have Christian yoga. Um, there's churches that their worship resembles kundalini yoga. And what is kundalini yoga? Well, if you ever see images or videos of people that are doing kundalini yoga they, what, what manifests in their body is uncontrollable movements, they, uh, it's like this takes over them and they have no control over themselves, what's fascinating about that is if you read about the demon possessed boy in Mark chapter 9, it says here that this was the way the, manif- the, the, the manifestation of this particular demon in this, in this particular boy in Mark 9, it says often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him uncontrollable movement Poof, flies in, falls into a fire right there at a campfire or something so syncretism it still takes place in, in some churches and it's sad to say another thing here is that the children of Israel you know they couldn't see God physically I mean they heard him in the beginning they were frightened they said Moses we don't want to hear his voice you go up and talk to him you know um, but they couldn't see God physically And Moses here goes up onto Mount Sinai, and he's gone for 40 40 days, not 40 years. And they're like, we don't know what happened to this Moses, you know. And so what do they do? They just ask Aaron to to make a calf for them. They wanted to worship something that they could see, something that they could handle, that they could experience, some physical manifestation. That's what they wanted to worship. And it says they rejoiced over the work of their own hands. And rather than serving God by faith, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, in, in Stephen's day, they worshipped what they could see, what they could handle, what they could make themselves. Uh, the phylacteries, for example, if you read in Deuteronomy, phylacteries. If you ever see an Orthodox Jewish person? they got this little box tied to the front of their head and on their wrists. Those, inside of those are scriptures. And they take basically a passage out of, out of Deuteronomy that says, the law of God should be on your foreheads and on your hand. And so they physically put the law of God on their foreheads and their hands. That's not what God meant, but that's what they do. Those are phylacteries. It's something I can physically do. And in Jesus' day, one of the accusations he made about the Pharisees, he goes, you make your phylacteries big. In other words, if you're really spiritual, you're going to have this huge crate on your forehead. You know, your, your neck is like this, yes, but you're, you, I, got, I really got the word of God because I'm spiritual. The temple. Hey, we can touch. We can feel it, man. It feels like we're worshiping God. Circumcision. Hey, if you're circumcised, we can see that. Hopefully, you don't see that, but you know what I mean? <laughs> it's a, it's a it, man, it's something that I can say, okay, it, I, I, now I'm spiritual. That's what they were doing in, in Stephen's day. You know, I'll be honest with you, there are times when creating an, an atmosphere is really conducive to worship. You know, there's times, and I've done it in the past, where like in an evening maybe we'll turn down the lights or something just to create this mood. And it's not trying to, maybe not create a mood, but, you know, we want it just to be like free of distractions or something for worship. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with removing distractions and quietness and stuff. But there is an inherent danger in focusing on the external rather than the internal, internal. And so, you know, I, I, I'll probably never have smoke, smoke machines in here, but not, you know, I'm not saying there's something wrong with having the smoke machine, the fog, whatever it is, not smoke and stuff. But it's, it can really be a danger in all of our hearts when we start focusing on the external. Okay, I've done this and this and this, now God's pleased with me. No, 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 he wants your heart. Even going to church, that's an external thing. Look, I've gone to church, man, God's happy with me. He wants your heart. He really wants your heart. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers having received it in turn also brought with Joseph into land possessed by the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, and he's quoting again from the Old Testament Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So Stephen reminds him of the tabernacle of witness, it's called, the tabernacle in the wilderness as they were traveling. That was portable. And they should have realized, hey, this is temporary, because it's just a traveling thing, you know. The temple was not portable, but it was also temporary. Listen, the original temple was Solomon's temple, right? You can read about that, the beautiful temple that Solomon created. That was the original temple. But God allowed Solomon's temple to be desecrated and destroyed. Why? Because by the time of the Babylonian captivity, the Jews themselves... They had desecrated the temple with their idols in fact, in Ezekiel chapter 8, if you ever read Ezekiel chapter 8, um, Ezekiel's t- he's given this vision to dig into this hole in the wall of the temple. And he digs in there and he starts seeing stuff. And the first thing he sees is women, women weeping for Tammuz, which is the Babylonian deity. It's goddess worship. They're worshiping this Tammuz. And then he goes a little bit farther and he sees men with their faces toward the east and they're worshiping the sun toward the east. Man, that's the eastern religions. They're worshiping the eastern things. God, so they, they desecrated their temple. And so God allowed that temple to be destroyed. You know, interesting thing, God initiated the building of the tabernacle, right? God commanded Moses, you're going to build this tabernacle and I'm going to give you all the details for it. But God didn't initiate the building of the temple. That was David. David David's heart, man. I want, I want a, I've got this beautiful paneled house, man. I want, I want God to have a house. And God says, man, why do you you want to do that? I mean, it's a good thing that you want to do that. I mean, you want to honor me, but, you know, I don't dwell in a house. But God allowed him to build it. It wasn't God like, you got to build a temple because that's the holy place. No, God allowed him to build a temple. But he didn't allow David to build it because David was a man of war. So he said, your son, Solomon, he'll build a temple. So Solomon's temple, that was destroyed because of the Jews' idolatry. And then after they come out of Babylonian captivity, Zerubbabel builds another temple. You know, it's interesting. So 70 years of captivity, and some some of the men were probably kids before they went into captivity. And the Bible says when they built Zerubbabel's temple, the older people started crying. I mean, younger people are like, yeah, we finally got a temple. The old people cried. Why? Because they remember the glory of Solomon's temple. And Zerubbabel's temple was nothing compared to that. But even that temple, Zerubbabel's temple was gone. The temple that they're now saying, this holy place, that was built by a pagan king named Herod. He's the one that built that temple. And so their accusations, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. We've heard him say, and then this other one, we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Well, this holy place that they so venerated, it wasn't even the original holy place. (laughs) It wasn't the original temple to begin with. It had been desecrated and destroyed long ago. And later on, God is, in 70 AD, God will allow Herod's temple to be destroyed by the Romans. Why? Because the Sanhedrin rejected Jesus Christ. The temple, it was a place of sacrifice for the Jewish people. But then Jesus comes, and Jesus... Jesus Christ, he fulfilled the perfect sacrifice for sins. Now, you don't, you don't need to kill an animal anymore. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice for sins. And the priesthood, they officiated the sacrificial system. But like it says in, in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He's fulfilled all that stuff. And they should have known that the temple was temporary. Listen, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you guys know the story. The temple veil ripped from the top to the bottom. It's a huge thing. Thick, very tall. It's like no guy can get there and start ripping. No, no, no. God did this. It ripped from the top to the bottom. and why? It indicated the way that you could now enter into the holy place. You could now, by faith, come into the presence of God. So they should have known, hey, something's happening here, (laughs) you know. What did they do? They sewed it back together. We've got to get into this holy place again. What the Jewish people failed to recognize was that the tabernacle and later the temple and all the physical aspects of worship, all circumcision, all that stuff, it was a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. And they completely missed that. You see, God's not impressed with external worship and its trappings. God's not impressed with that. The Lord wants his word to be written on the tablet of our hearts, the Bible says. He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And he doesn't want you to go out and physically get circumcised. That's not God's command. I know they do that in our culture still. But he wants us to cut away the sinful flesh from our hearts. That's what he wants. Well, anyways, after laying out his case against the Jewish leaders, the Holy Spirit's going to go in for the kill now. He's giving him the formal charges against him. You see, the reality is they thought that they were trying Stephen. And your Bibles will say Stephen's defense. Nothing wrong with that. But the reality is the Sanhedrin, they are the ones on trial. And Stephen's just the prosecuting attorney. And the Holy Spirit's the judge verse 51 and so stephen says this he's he's giving them all these examples of how their forefathers rejected moses rejected joseph and it's like you guys rejected jesus christ too and so verse 51 you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the holy spirit as your fathers did so do you which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and gnashed their teeth at him. I don't know what gnashing their teeth is, but they were like, you know, they were convicted by the Holy Spirit. He called them stiff necked. Now, sometimes in the morning, you know, I'm, I'm stiff necked, but hopefully it's not. You know, the, an accusation, but, you know, stiff neck. What does it mean? It means to be stubborn. It means to be headstrong. You're, you're bound and determined to go in your direction. You don't, nobody's going to tell you anyways. You're obstinate. That's what he's saying. Th- these guys were obstinate, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Now you got to remember, circumcision is a Jewish rite. All Jewish males were circumcised. It identified you as being a Jew. He called them uncircumcised in hearts and ears. He said their heart attitude and their refusal to listen to the gospel put them in the same class as the Gentiles. The Gentiles were outside of God's covenant. He's saying, saying, you guys are just like the Gentiles in rejecting the Lord. And you you know what that was? That's fighting words (laughs) for a Jewish person. I'm a Gentile? They hated the Gentiles. You're calling me a Gentile? And then he says this, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in your heart. He's a sign and your seal of your salvation. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes, and the Bible says it, sometimes we quench the Spirit. Spirit wants to do something, but we hold them back because of our flesh. You know, something, we just, we hold them back. We, We quench it. Sometimes the Bible says we grieve the Holy Spirit. Man, you're just like, you know. But to always resist the Holy Spirit, that's a very strong expression. That means that they were actively, ongoing, rejecting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit's given that hey, Jesus is the Messiah, you need a Savior. They're like, nope, nope, nope. Always resisting the Holy Spirit. You see... It was really the Sanhedrin who were on trial. Stephen wasn't on trial. He wasn't wasn't defending himself. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to their heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. He's they're already—they're already calling him uncircumcised. they're thick ears, right? They're not—they're like they physically. I don't want to hear what he's saying. No, 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 no. You—you no. you know, I don't want to hear what he's saying. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll get to that later on in the book of Acts. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And of course, that means he died. Stephen began with a description of the God of glory and now he's actually seeing the glory of God. And all the way through this Sanhedrin's trial, he's reflecting God's glory on his face in his speech. And you know that reflection on his face, it's, what, it's from what's in his heart. It's not like he was faking it, trying to look like him. No, it's what was in his heart. The look of peace. The look of confidence in the Lord and in the boldness of the Holy Spirit. Stephen reflected the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that was in his heart. It just just flowed out. They just saw it. So Stephen's defense, like I said, Stephen wasn't defending himself. He was just yielded to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was trying the Sanhedrin in the court of conscience. And so Stephen is stoned. He's the first martyr of the church. And the way he dies, just like our Savior did, he dies praying for his executioners. Amazing. Fascinating. You know, the only way that you and I can live like that and to die like that is if our lives are fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit. That's that's the only way. We can't do it any other way. You can't manufacture this. It's only if your life is fully submitted to the Holy Spirit and you're filled with the Spirit that's that's the only way you can do this and so my prayer for us as, a, as individuals and as a church is that man we would have that that confidence that that we would see God on the throne I mean there's a lot of crazy stuff going on you know they talk politically that you know oh things are going to change and stuff what if that doesn't what if everything is you know like the last you know things just are not what you end up expecting and, you know, the, the, the laws get crazier and crazier and crazier and ungodly and ungodly. It's like, this place is terrible. God's on the throne still. This place isn't our home anyways. I'm just, I'm just going to keep trusting Him. That's what the Lord wants you and I to do. And, you know, you might be going through a terrible thing in your life. And, and you know, the, I don't minimize anything that people go through. People go through some very difficult things in their lives. Physical issues, health Family issues, marriage—you know, divorces and stuff—terrible things. But just remember, God's still in control. And you know, even in those times when you don't see, it's like I, I don't, man, I don't know what's going on. God's still at work in our lives, just like He was with the children of Israel. He's not tied, He's not confined to a location. He's not—he he just wants your heart. That's all He wants. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer this morning. And you, the worship team, you guys can come on up here.